nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. This is our country. Good evening and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Joining me now is Professor Burton Folsom, Jr. He's the Charles Klein Professor of History and Management at Hillsdale College, right up the road. He's author of many books, including New Deal or Raw Deal, The Myth of the Robber Barons, and with his wife, Anita, FDR Goes to War. Professor, welcome to An Economy of One. Well, thank you, Gary. Good to be with you tonight. I I had the privilege of uh, uh, talking to your president out at CPAC uh, a few weeks ago and uh, had a great time. We're down here in Toledo, of course, so uh, I'm I'm somewhat embarrassed to say, but many, many, many years ago, I went to Adrian College, so... Just, okay, well, just you kind of down the road from you. That's yeah, right. you didn't quite make it to Hillsdale, but you you're on the right road going there. Yeah, and probably in the mid '70s when I went to college, the tuition was probably similar, so I probably <laughs> could have afforded to go there. But anyway, um, I wanted to, to give you a call. I was talking to my producer the other day, and I I picked up again and reread New Deal or Raw Deal. Uh, I, I thought that was was fascinating. My favorite of yours, of course, is uh, The Myth of the Robber Barons. And, oh, thank and, you. and most recently, I read Uncle Sam Can't Count. I mean, you, you, you've got some great material uh, out there. Uh, of course, the CPAC, I picked up, uh, I think it's called A Republic, If We Can Keep It, uh, yes. with uh, Larry Reed. And I'm, uh, he's a great guy over to he is. Uh, Fee. But, uh, you know, in, in light of what's going on, we're just coming off uh, eight years of of President Obama coming off of eight years of of uh, President Bush coming into uh, the Trump uh, presidency, and I thought it'd be a good time to revisit uh, some of the the conversations, some of the the uh, information that you've put together around FDR and uh, the '30s, a Great Depression, because a lot of these entitlements that we have that are causing us so much problem really started back then, didn't they? They did. It's good to start in the 1930s. Social Security, for example, mm-hmm. uh, which has some positive features in that you might end up paying a lot for old age uh, welfare programs if we didn't have it. But still, it's it's a payment that was uh, that was never designed to be economically efficient. It was made, uh, as FDR said, for political purposes. Mm-hmm. Well, programs like that started in the 1930s. The whole idea that you can create jobs by taxing people, taking the money, and then having public works jobs. That myth was developed in the 1930s. You know, it's, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that FDR said Social Security was a political thing because that was one of the, the bullet points I wrote down to chat with you about tonight. But he essentially uh, was brilliant, kind of evil brilliant, by saying yes. Congress will never get rid of, of a tax. <laughs> So, I mean, he made it Social Security a tax, so Congress would never get rid of it and consequently never get rid of the entitlement. Uh, That's kind of evil, isn't it, you know? 
It is. What FDR discovered, though, is once you create a constituency for a program, your opponents can't afford to alienate that constituency by taking the program away. Mm -hmm. He tried that with older people in Social Security, but also with the farmers, with the AAA. In other words, you you, you have programs that go to – you target groups of voters. You have a program for those groups of voters, and it's it's invariably inefficient. In the case of the AAA, you're paying farmers not to produce. Well, how's right. that going to get you out of a depression, obviously? But nonetheless, the, uh, many farmers liked it, the idea. And so then the Republican who ran against Franklin Roosevelt, who was complaining about the program, the AAA, ended up having to face farmers who were angry with him and said, you're going to take away our program. And so he, he, he said, well, I'll just try to run it a little bit more efficiently. Well, are you going to vote for the guy who gave you the program? Or the guy who promises to run it more efficiently. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. Now, you know, it, it, your book it reminds me the uh, uh, New Deal or, or Raw Deal. It reminds me that over the years, uh, and maybe even at the time, the the perception of FDR was kind of our favorite uncle, a uh, nice guy. Uh, did things, but really behind the scenes, he wasn't a real nice man, was he? No, he though he was thoughtful enough though to try to create a good public image, and he did this through the radio. Mm-hmm. But you're right, B- uh, behind the scenes, he was he was quite a Machiavellian manipulator, and it did a great deal of damage for the country. Occasionally, it would catch up with him in the, as in the case when he packed the. Tried to pack the Supreme Court right. after he won his second term, and he was rebuked when he did that. You know, it, it, it's uh, fascinating because um, you know I, I I don't know whether to take comfort or feel more anxious, but in, in reading the book, the 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 spending, the political attitudes, that kind of stuff, not much different than we have today. Not much has changed in the last eighty years or so, has it? No, the Republicans have not really come up with, uh, at least consistently, with a a good response to the arguments that Roosevelt made back in the 30s. And that's why we keep seeing them recycled again in various forms. Uh, In in the case of President Obama, you're searching for groups to give a program to so you can get their votes. And, of course, uninsured or or people who have no health insurance become one group. College Mm -hmm. students are one that they – since I teach college, of course, at at Hillsdale College, uh, I'm very – sensitive to that. But college students, uh, they're trying to rope in, and and, uh, some of the politicians want to have forgiveness for the loans so that uh, that many of them have made, so that they, too, can be roped into, uh, in this case, the Democratic Party for generations to come. Now, you know, one of the things that's that's, uh, easily rememberable by by people is the the, uh, FDR program of, of everybody turning in their gold uh, $20 an ounce. And then when that program was done, he raised it to, to $35 an ounce, essentially putting a, a 70% inflation, uh, tag in there. But in in reading your book again, I was reminded of how, um, the rich really, or the wealthier actually put less revenue into the government and the, the middle-class, lower-class, put a lot more revenue into the government during Roosevelt 
uh, mainly through excise taxes. Is I mean, I, I'm sure he wasn't the first to put an excise tax out there, but he kind of took it to a new level. He did. Roosevelt recognized that the a tax, for example, we, we had in 1932 the one-cent gas tax. It was mm-hmm. our first federal gas tax, and it was raised under Roosevelt, and he recognized that if you have tens of millions of people paying a penny or two uh, for every month or so uh, for gas, that that really generates more money than if you can get a couple multimillionaires and hit them real hard. Right. Now, he had use for hitting the multimillionaires real hard because once he socked it with cigarette taxes and with alcohol taxes especially to the middle class and lower class, he could then complain that the rich weren't paying their fair share because they were trying to avoid taxes, which, of course, indeed they were, given that the income tax was 94% on all income over $200,000. Yeah, it it was fascinating. I I had to laugh because, you know, if you look at the numbers, and and of course your your book is is wonderful on on the examples, uh, but he had a movie ticket tax. And uh, which I I think is funny, but uh, the minute he implemented, not the minute, but after he implemented the Social Security payroll tax, uh, the movie tax went way down or the revenue from the movie tax went way down because people couldn't afford to go to movies anymore. And and it's just that unintended consequences of political actions that, that I think illustrates perfectly there. It does. And you can see whenever you try to play games, with government interference in, in the form of taxes, that you have problems. In fact, the Great Depression was largely created by government trying to play games in the late 20s and early 30s. In the case of the uh, Smoot-Hawley tariff, for example, a high right. tariff on imports. Well, we'll just sock it to these foreigners. Well, then you have a then you have fewer. Uh, they won't buy our products, mm-hmm. so that we have five million American automobiles sold in 1929, but only 1.6 million sold four years later. So we look at all the revenue, look at all the uh, sales that we lose uh, in part because we just refuse to uh, have free trade. You know, and that's that's at the forefront of a lot of discussion today with President Trump and, and TPP and especially uh, NAFTA. I mean, he's, he's, he's going after that. Um, I, I got you for another uh, a minute or so. I wanted to touch on because one of the things that stuck out uh, to me, and, and just a week or so ago, uh, we spent an evening or a part of an evening talking about what's a right. Uh, what's, a, what's a constitutional right? What's a right? And I, I've explained to people that the Constitution doesn't give us any rights. They protect our rights. FDR, in, in looking at uh, reading, rereading through uh, your book, uh, he talked about different rights, uh, the right of a family to have a home, the right to a good education. Uh, today, it's medical care and, and useful jobs and, and, and good jobs. Uh, and, and, and today, it just seems like the vernacular, the, the narrative is, yeah, those are rights. In fact, earlier tonight, we talked about Mark Cuban coming out saying he wants to make it a constitutional right for health care. Wants to change the Constitution. Uh, right. When, it, that, that's pitiful. That's pitiful. When did we we lose our definition of what a right is? 
you are exactly right in pinpointing Franklin Roosevelt. He was a key person in this. His Economic Bill of Rights, which he produced in 1944, mm-hmm. was the first real public large-scale promoted systematic attempt to create rights like uh, the right to a home, the right to, uh, the right to medical care, the right to an education. All of those were in his Economic Bill of Rights. And, of course, the big obvious difference, if, if you have a right to free speech, Gary, mm-hmm. then uh, we don't have to listen. People can turn off the radio if they right. want. Right. But if you have a right to an education, then the rest of us have an obligation to pony up the money to send you to a college. And that is where the distinction is absolutely critical, because when you're talking about rights to health care, you're talking about forcing taxes and people having to pay for you to be able to indulge this so-called right. Yeah, that's my whole thought. A right has to stand alone. And not involve yeah. other people, you know. So right. uh, the payment of other people, right? That, that's yes. right. That's right. So, uh, well, Professor, this this has been a real treat for me. Uh, I wish I had you for a couple more hours. I, I do read your your books. You got some great stuff out there. I really liked, like you said, the myth of the robber barons. I had some questions. I want to get into that, and we just didn't have time tonight. Uncle Sam can't count. Uh, New Deal or Raw Deal? I mean, great stuff. Hillsdale College, near and dear to. To, to our hearts and our, our listeners' heart. And I appreciate all your time. I hope we can uh, tap you on the shoulder again soon and, and continue the conversation. That would be fine, Gary. I enjoyed talking with you. Thank you for having me on your show. I appreciate it. appreciate the work you do. Have a great evening. Coming up next, Mark Cuban wants to change the Constitution to add to your rights. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I read an article this week that quoted Dallas Mavericks owner Mark Cuban in wanting to change the Constitution to make health care a right. Now, we've spent a lot of time on this show talking about what a right is. And in our system, in the American system, a right is the invoidable ability to act without the permission of other people and a right can be exercised as long as the rights of another person are not violated in the doing. In other words, a right is something that is availably equal to all citizens, something that can't be taken away by government. But it's also something that is not granted by government. So when it comes to health care, there's nothing in nature, nothing in our system that says that health care is a right. Now, Mark Cuban, one of the brightest guys out there, he's wealthy, but that doesn't matter. He's still a very smart person. Don't agree with a lot of his policy stuff that he's been coming out with since the campaign last year and certainly the results of the election. But he feels that the U.S. Constitution should be changed to proclaim health care an American right. Now, this is a 
a road to a nationalized single-payer health care system. Now, it's contradictory, and this is what's interesting to me, because he doesn't agree with government-run hospitals. He just thinks people should have the right to health care. To quote, I think health care should be a right. If there's a legitimate way to modify the Constitution, I literally think there should be an amendment to the Constitution for health care for chronic illnesses and serious injury. Now, let's look at that just real briefly. Chronic illnesses and serious injury. Yeah, those are the biggies. Those are the ones that, that put people in a financial crisis. But how long would it be before there was a court case that dispelled the chronic illness, serious injury clause and went to all illnesses and all injuries? Chronic and serious are subjective terms. Once you uh, get that camel's nose under the tent, the rest of him is going to come. Now, he also said he's had friends who, who have had cancer. We've all had people had severe illnesses. And if they don't have insurance, it's financially devastating. And he has stepped in and paid for them himself for his friends. And, and he thinks that's wrong, that that's a cost we all should share. Well, I disagree with that. He puts the solution there right in front of us. If government wasn't confiscating so much money out of me, I would be more inclined to help people through charity and help people pay for things. I got no problem with that. But a right, a health care right, would require the labor of doctors, nurses, and other providers, essentially making them slaves. Because how can they deny you a right? Roosevelt tried this back in the 40s when he had his second Bill of Rights to make education, housing, health care, and other things rights. These are not rights. These are things, services in our society, but they are not rights. And it would be extraordinarily dangerous to have a constitutional amendment telling us such. Very, very dangerous. Coming up next, we're going to talk to a couple ex-Marines that are part of Honor, Courage, Commitment, Inc. We'll talk to them next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Cliff Sossaman. He's the Executive Director of Honor, Courage, Commitment, Inc. He manages the Veteran Entrepreneurship Training Program and the Operation Job Placement Program and also HCC Donor Relations. Along with him is Urshel Metcalf. He's the Director of Operations at Honor, Courage, Commitment, where his focus is the growth, development, and funding of HCC programs. Guys, welcome to An Economy of One. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for the opportunity to be here. We really appreciate it. Now, uh, uh, Honor, Courage, Commitment, Inc. Let, let's start with the basics. What, what, what's the organization? What do you do? So the, the mission of, of Honor, Courage, Commitment is to, to empower veterans uh, to become successful in their next mission in life. They had a mission when they were in the military, and that was 
whatever that was, depending on their job and their unit and their branch of service. Mm -hmm. But everybody's main mission was to protect the homeland, right? You were right. part of a unit uh, and you deployed or you didn't deploy, but you did some facet of job in the military that was part of a team larger than yourself. Um, you get out, you kind of lose that sense of purpose again, and that's what HCC is about. We are helping fulfill, helping reinst reinstate, I guess would be the word I say, our sense of purpose in veterans and teach them how to become successful entrepreneurs, how to run a business, get a business going, uh, hire more people, grow the local economy, uh, and then to for those who are not business owners to become a uh, successful employee by teaching them how to um, successfully search for their next career. So, so it's not just uh, starting their own company. It's a job, a career, it, that it, kind of stuff to support their family and contribute to the communities. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, and in many times, uh, it may be someone that has a job, but they really haven't connected with purpose. Mm -hmm. uh, one of the things that we know is that every every young man and young woman that's in the military, every day they wake up with a mission. And they know what that mission is. There's there's a connection to their unit. The people they work with or the people that they play with in your life is surrounded by that. And so what we want to help them do is if they're trying to start a business, if they already have a business or whatever, we really want them to connect with purpose. And so that's where we see our greatest role is empowering them to connect with their purpose, which we call their next mission. So now they have a daily mission to go out and create jobs for the economy in their local community and really make a difference in that way. You know, as an employer, uh, one of the hardest um, jobs in the company is finding quality people to hire. And uh, I'll tell you a little story. I just worked with a couple uh, tool and die companies. I'm from Northwest Ohio, mm -hmm. uh, Highway Automotive. They told me, both companies, they, they were in the same room and they verified the numbers, Last year in 2016, they hired almost 600 people each to get two or three. Mm -hmm. Wow. Now, that tells me that the work ethic out there stinks. And one of the things that I have found with military people is the work ethic. Absolutely. I mean, they get up, they show up on time, they work, and then they, they, they go home. Right. right. And I can tell you, I, my wife and I owned our own staffing agency for five years. So I know exactly what you're talking about. Um, whether you're veteran or not veteran, the one thing to think about, though, depending on the job, the reason why it, it's not necessarily so much the work ethic, it's the it's the purpose within the job. Does that am I getting up every day and am I packing boxes at um, at Amazon? Am I am I sitting behind a machine in a factory creating something? But if that doesn't fulfill my sense of purpose, knowing that that part that I'm creating is going to go to build a car that's going to be safe and take some kid to school every day, if that fulfills my sense of purpose, then I will have I will do quality work at that company. If that does not fulfill my sense of purpose, and this is just something I'm doing from nine to five, so I can, you know, I can put milk on the table, then you're probably not going to be successful at that job. So take that into the military mindset, and that is our whole goal: is to help those veterans determine what their sense of purpose is. What is their why? As Simon Sinek says, why do they get up every morning? What motivates them? What drives them? What makes them say? This is what my life needs to be about. And when you determine and you find that what that is, veteran or not, when you find that, then no, you will never go to work again. 
And I can tell you from me personally, I haven't gone to work in, in a couple of years because um, I, I get up every day and I can't wait to get up, can't wait to get to the office because I am driven to empower. That's what we do. And I, every day, and it's to help veterans find that same sense of purpose. So I'm going to take it as the compliment that you don't find this interview with me as work. Uh, no. Okay. <laughs> now, when I'm kind of comes... like a politician. In there. <laughs> That's right. There's a microphone. Get out of the way. Here I come. Sometimes we just do this for the heck of it. Yeah. Well, just Nobody's listening. Nobody's yeah. sitting yeah. in the office doing that, it. That may be the case today. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, and, and you mentioned it, and I, I think it's an excellent point. Uh, that translates to all of us. Right. Yes. Not just military. I mean, I, I have seen people that have told me. I've got eight more years, four months, and 23 days to retirement. And I told them, okay, you got uh, that much time plus a day to death. Right. right. Because you're dead now. We'll just bury you when you're done producing. Yeah. I mean, that, that's got to be terrible to look at your life as this is how many days I got left to retire. Exactly. Right. And it, many of the, the challenges when, when we're working with veterans, many of the challenges that we discuss and we talk about, they're not just germane to military. Mm -hmm. We understand the transition, and so that's why this is our area where we are focusing on helping with the transition. But when it comes to that lack of purposefulness or TBIs or traumatic brain injuries or PTS, mm -hmm. there are people walking around, there are people all over this place that have traumatic brain injuries, that have post-traumatic stress. But we understand how to reconnect those wires for the veteran to say, listen, you know how to live on mission. You know how to live on purpose. Now let's reconnect you in this phase of your life. And so that's just the specialty for us is to be able to say, you've been trained to, to train. You've been trained to be trained. You've been trained to be day on, stay on if the work needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And you've been trained to shut it down when it's time to, to go do something else. And so if we can take what we call that mission accomplishment mentality that they've learned in the military, and help them translate that into a bottom line profitability mentality for the private sector, then that becomes a very valuable tool. And that becomes something that every employer should be looking, every headhunter, all of the people that are responsible for hiring, they should be looking for veterans who have made that connection. You know, you, you bring up an interesting point, and it, it, it's just running around in my brain. How are you able, and I mean, there, there's a lot of, men and women that come out of the service that are traumatized that not just physically but but mentally um does does your organization have success in those areas in in helping them well i can tell you that one of the things that we do uh, is we have a program called the fellows program that we're developing out um, it was part of a separate program that we're, we're now making it its own its own program but what that does is that allows us to reconnect veterans within that fellowship within brotherhood camaraderie and what we do is we have art therapy classes we have music therapy we have equine therapy we have um, group session therapies with uh, trained counselors who come into our facility uh, who do this for veterans on a regular basis. We're going to take them out kayak fishing. We're going to take them out and go do group events and retreats and things like that. Because you cannot run a business, you cannot successfully find or work at a job or a career if you don't have those things in your life right. Mm -hmm. And and finding those, those senses 
back and getting back together with that brotherhood and, and starting to work through some of those issues. And I'll tell you, um, if somebody goes, if anybody who's listening goes to our website, which is hccvet.org, they can find on there toward the top a video that we just completed this week. And in that, one of the fellows, her name is Christy, talks about how you know, she was in deployed to Iraq. Uh, she was a Navy corpsman. And she had a lot of anxiety. She's trying to run a business, but had a lot of anxiety, but did not make the connection that that anxiety tied back to her time in Iraq due to being in the war. And she determined that, she discovered that through the classes and through the things that we were doing and we were offering for them as we were teaching them how to run their business and start a business. And she said, it has changed her life. So those are some of the, that, that is what we try to do. We're about we didn't do anything special. We just put them in front of the right people with the right tools at the right time. Mm -hmm. And and that made a huge difference in her life. She's now running a successful business. She's made more money since she finished the class in August than she made with her business the two years prior. Yeah, that's incredible. Now, uh, that being said, what, what do you see is the biggest mistake that men and women coming out of the military going into the workforce make? What's the biggest, most common biggest mistake? Well, I think the biggest mistake is not really quantifying and qualifying the work that they do in the military in a way that they, in their mind, can translate it to what that looks like outside of the military and then being able to communicate that. And so they come out with an expectation, and here's our biggest challenge. They come out with an expectation that something is going to be given to them because of what they've done in the military. Well, that's not gonna happen. Nothing is given to you anywhere. You have to go out and get it. And so there may be a little bit of extra training, uh, but there definitely can't be that expectation of entitlement. Because if there's an expectation of entitlement, that's gonna lead to disappointment. And so they have to have a clear focus on this is what I've done. This is how I qualify that and quantify it and how I translate that. And now I go out and sell myself to those employers to say, this is how I add benefit to your company. Yeah, the, the, the free market is a harsh mistress. Right. Absolutely. Well, and I'll tell you with that, what he was just saying to take it a step further is veterans just innately are, are humble individuals. Mm -hmm. um, and to go out and sell themselves is not something that is easily done, right? And that's something that they have to be trained to do. Mm -hmm. They have to get that mindset of, I can offer this to you. Um, and so they have to also realize that what they did in the military mattered and they have to understand, we'll hear a lot of times, well, I, I, was, a, I was a grunt, right? I was, I was an infantryman. There's no infantry jobs in the civilian sector. You're right, there's not. However, you were trained in medical techniques. You were trained as a leader. You were trained in da -da, you know, all these different things. That is very valuable to an employer because sure. as my wife and I told our clients and we had a staffing agency, you know, um, astronauts are not born. Right. Brain surgeons are not born. They are trained for those positions. I can train anybody for any position. What we cannot do is we cannot train core values. We cannot train discipline. We cannot train integrity. We cannot train those things. Those are innate, innate to your personality. They're innate to your being from your upbringing. You have those things and you can sell that to an employer, everything else is gravy. Yeah, we, we've always had a, 
a phrase in our company is that you can fix anything but character. Absolutely. That's right. Train anything no, but character. That's, that's right. right. If it's a character flaw, we got a problem. So, yes. Uh, sure. Guys, this has been great. How do people get in touch with your firm to uh, seek out your services? First and foremost, our, our new website, which just launched over the weekend, www.hccvet.org. Hccvet.org. Okay. Uh, they can also follow us on Twitter. And and Instagram at HCC Vet, and then on Facebook at Honor Courage Commitment Inc. Um, we'd love to have people come out. And the number one thing people always ask: Well, how can I get involved? How can I be a part? Well, number one, we're a nonprofit. It takes money to do what we do. We always ask for donations. But the no number two thing, which I, I think is even more important than that, is spreading the message. Going to Facebook and sharing that with your friends. Telling people about it, taking the website and emailing it out to your group and say, I heard about this organization. I think what they're doing is great. I'd love for you guys to just take a look. When people see that and they spread that message, everything else will come because we believe so strongly in what we're doing that the message is there. And when people see it, they, they want to just they just want to be involved. And we love that. So one could say you guys are on purpose then. We are Absolutely. on purpose. Well, Cliff Absolutely. and Ursula, I really appreciate you spending a little time with us today. It was it was great meeting you here at CPAC. Yeah, it was an honor being here. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you uh, for your service, and I promise you we will talk again. Uh, we look forward to that it very much. Great. Thank, Thank you, you very much. Thank you. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Just recently, you know, I, I mean, I've said several times, get government out of the free market. Anytime the government gets in the free market, it screws it up. This last week, we had one more example uh, in Austin, Texas. Now, this has been going on. It's been getting set up for over a year, but the city council in Austin tried to put together a package for drivers for Uber and Lyft. And it included fingerprinting uh, requirements, background checks, all kinds of paperwork and documentation. They could only pick people up at a certain locations, drop them off at certain locations, that kind of stuff. And they were warned a year ago by Uber and Lyft that if they implemented this stuff, Austin might be left without these options. And a lady on the city council and kitchen, quote, to threaten to leave simply because we are trying to protect public safety cannot be my deciding factor, kitchen shot back. There are other transportation network companies and they will be here. Well, recently uh, Austin had a big festival and it revolved around technology it's 10 days long a lot of speakers coming in and and panels and and that kind of stuff to look at different technologies and and uh, different changes disruptions in the the uh, social network and economy and come to find out the people at uber and lyft were correct they didn't get enough drivers. People didn't want to participate in Uber and Lyft as drivers, as, as ride givers, 
because of all the new regulations, fingerprinted, that kind of stuff. And the uh, apps that were out there, Fasten and Ride Austin, apparently just crashed or malfunctioned or the prices just went out of sight. They left riders without rides. People were waiting at airports for a long time, ended up taking the regular cabs. It was exactly what Uber and Lyft said would happen. And, of course, uh, I have not seen any retraction by the city council or the city of Austin in general, but it's a classic example where special interest, and and I got to believe it had something to do with the Taxi Drivers Association or Union or Taxi Owners Association or something like that, but... What they did is they turned ride-sharing services into essentially uh, being more like taxis. And when you turn those services to to work like taxis, they, uh, oddly enough, work like taxis. The taxi situation is the very reason companies like Uber and Lyft exist. Because people don't want to pay those prices. They don't want to be tied into that limited part of the market. A new technology coming into the economy disrupts the old technology. And it's that disruption that people resist. When really we should be we should be embracing that disruption. Speakers to conferences, staff to conferences, missed their events and were unable to fulfill their responsibilities because of this. People didn't have as many options. Now, I'll bet you the council will not recant anything. They'll find something or someone else to blame for this. But uh, it also, one of the the provisions, the argument could be made, it it excluded out or or, uh, was... uh, prejudice disproportionately impacted certain minorities or certain people in the community. In other words, because of these fingerprint checks, background checks and stuff, it included arrest records rather than just convictions. So a lot of people, rather than have that information put out there and be subject to whether they could be a driver for Uber or Lyft or not, simply didn't do it. So exactly what Uber and Lyft said would happen, happened. And classic example of government sticking their nose into something that they have no idea what the heck they're doing. They don't know economics, and they wrap it in the, the beautiful paper of protect public safety because you are too stupid to make your own decision about how to get transportation and move from point A to point B. Government at its best. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 